The following sermon is by Russ Andrews, Executive Director of Finding Purpose Ministry. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, are from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Good morning. It's great to see some new faces here this morning and some old faces. A friend of mine came up here this morning and said, Russ, I've got a meeting at 1 o'clock. I said, I think you'll be okay. I'm I'm joking. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. And Lord, thank you for the fact that we can gather in this country uh, in total freedom, not having to worry about the Gestapo breaking down the doors and and, uh, arresting us for worshiping you. Lord, help us not to take that for granted. And I pray, Lord, that you will continue to bless this nation with your free, the freedom that you've given us from day one. And, Lord, I do pray now that you would prepare each one of our hearts, beginning with mine, for the word that you are about to give us. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. I've entitled um, this morning's message, When a Nation Dishonors God. Subtitled, I'm into titles, by the way, When God's Patience runs out. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 5 if you want to go and take your Bibles and open up there. Now last week, for those of you who are here, you may remember that Grant gave an incredible message about the honor of God. He discussed about how we are to live a life to honor God because He is our creator and He's our sustainer. Now think about that just for a moment. God created each one of us. He breathed life into us. And not only did he create you and me, but he is the one who sustains each one of us every moment of every day. Moreover, he is the one who holds the entire universe together. He causes the sun to shine upon us. He sends the rain when we need it to nourish the earth. He's blessed us with rain recently, hasn't he? So he's provided everything that we need for life and happiness. Now, he's also the one who establishes how we are to live. In other words, how we are to honor him with our lives. And he, he, has given, he has told us how to do this by giving us commands, precepts, and laws that we are to live by for both our spiritual health and our physical well-being. We are to obey them, to listen, not solely out of duty, but mainly because we love him. When we think about his grace and his mercy and what he did for us, how can we not obey him? This is why he created us, to be in an intimate, personal relationship with him, to love him, and to worship him. Every human being that has been created was created with that purpose in God's mind, to love him, to honor him, just like you want your children to love you and honor you. And so as our creator, we owe God our full allegiance But unfortunately, we are a people who who at one time or another, all of us, have rebelled against God and gone our own way. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what is God's response when we rebel against him? 
Well, he lets us do what we want to. He lets us go our own way. He gives us over to our own selfish, evil desires. Now, I want you to understand this truth because this is not, you know, an easy message to listen to. I'm going to warn you. <laughs> but I want you all to keep this, this in your mind as, I, as, we, as you hear what I've got to say this morning. God is long-suffering. He is patient. But his patience has a limit. At some point, God says enough. At some point, God's patience runs out. This inevitably happens when a nation continues in open rebellion and defiance against the very laws and commands that he's told us to live by. Then God has no choice but to judge us. Moreover, and we, we can, you can see this all throughout Scripture, God will send judgments against any nation when that nation continues in open rebellion, when that nation continually defies His laws, and when that nation mocks Him by its actions. And sadly, and this grieves my heart, this is what I see in our country today. As you look across our landscape at what is happening in our cities, in our schools, in our government, and even in many of our churches, we are observing the judgments of God against a nation that has been given so much. We've been blessed more than any nation in the, since the beginning of creation, have we not? Bernard of Clooney, who lived in the middle of the 12th century, wrote a poem entitled, Du Contempt to Mundi. That's French, in case you didn't recognize my French accent. It, it means the contempt of the world. And the theme of this very long poem, which is 3,000 lines, which I'm not going to read this morning, but the theme of it is expressed in the opening lines of one of the stanzas, and it goes like this. It's in your outline. The world is evil. The times are waxing late. Be, be sober and keep vigil. The judge is at the gate. Now, even though this poem was written in 1140 uh, A.D., I believe it is pertinent to our day. Without a doubt, the world we live in is evil. All you have to do is watch the news. The times are waxing late. And I personally believe it's time for us as Christians to be more than ever sober and keep vigil. Because I do believe the judge is at the gate. Now listen. <laughs> the world does not want to hear any talk about the judgment of God. And you probably didn't wake up this morning thinking, gosh, I would really like to hear something about the judgment of God. But, and here's the other thing, most churches rarely, if ever, mention the judgment of God, do they? Most churches, particularly the modern church, paint a picture of God as a mild, grandfatherly figure who simply dotes over his children. But that is not a correct biblical view of God. J.I. Packer, in his excellent book entitled Knowing God, writes, Quote, why do men fight shy of the thought of God as a judge? Why do they feel the thought to be unworthy of him? The truth is that part of God's moral perfection is his perfection in judgment. Would a God, listen, would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? Would he? Would a God who put no distinction between the beasts of history, the Hitlers and the Stalins, if we name any, and his own saints, be morally praiseworthy and perfect. Moral indifference would be an imperfection of God, not a perfection. 
But not to judge the world would be to show moral indifference. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to questions of right and wrong, is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. I think everybody's born with this idea, within our DNA, that at some point, we're going to have to give an account of our lives. Would you all agree with that? It's just in our DNA, even an atheist. Deep down inside, he knows it. Acts 17, 31 says, For he, this is God, the Father, has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man, notice it's a man, the God-man, <laughs> he's appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So whenever you think about the resurrection, you can think about this truth. The fact that there was a resurrection, according to Scripture, means that God is going to judge the world one day. That's why there had to be a resurrection, because there had to be a cross. Now this morning... I want to mention three realities. First, judgment is already here. Second, the final judgment is coming. And third, there's, all, there's good news because God has provided a way of escape. You see, when Jesus came into the world, and you all know this, he came for one purpose. He came to die for the sins of the world. In other words, Jesus was born to die. Why did he have to die? Because God is just, and he must judge sin. He has no other choice. Not to judge sin would be, would be uh, for God to go against his own character, and he can't do that. It's impossible for him. Now, the Bible also makes it very clear, and this is my favorite aspect about God. This is what I'd rather talk about, is that he's a God of love, and I want you children to hear this. He's a God of love and grace and mercy. In fact, the Bible says that God delights in showing mercy. Micah 7, 18 and 19, two of my favorite verses in the entire Bible say, who is a God like you? It's almost hard to understand. How can he forgive us when he, when he sees what we're doing? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. If you're in Christ, all of your sins and all of your iniquities have been cast into the depths of the sea. How good is that? And here's the good news. Even with America, God still loves the world so much that he provided a way of escape from this coming day of judgment. And that way of escape is what? It's in your outline. The cross. That's a God's escape door. But here's the deal. If anyone refuses to come to the cross where Jesus hung in our place, then one day and perhaps very soon, that person will face God's judgment all alone. John writes in Revelation 14, 7, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. We, we know from history that God judges the world by just reading the, the Bible. During the days of Noah, God's patience ran out and God sent the flood. During the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, God's patience ran out and God sent hail, fire, and brimstone from heaven. And one day, I believe this, and perhaps soon, God's patience 
It's going to run out one final time. And I believe that's what will usher in the second coming. Basically, when God says enough, and he sends his son back to bring this evil world to an end. You want to know, well, why does God not bring evil to an end? Because of his grace and mercy. If he brought it to an end, nobody would get saved tomorrow. And have you ever thought about this? God sees all the evil that's taking place 24-7. We see just a fraction of it. I mean, we see like one millionth of one percent. He sees everything. Everything that's taking place in New York City right now. Everything that's taking place in, all around the world right now. He sees it. This morning, we're going to examine Daniel chapter 5. It's an amazing chapter. In Daniel 5, we see a nation, Babylon, that totally dishonored God, and God's patience ran out with a particular king whose name was Belshazzar. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to, to uh, Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading this, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's a, it's a very interesting story. We read here in verse 1, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While, now catch this. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the, I want to add the word holy here because they were, the holy gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. When King Nebuchadnezzar defeated the southern kingdom of Judah around 600 B.C., he brought back all the golden instruments that were in the temple, and he brought them back to Babylon. Verse 3, so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Then suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king then called out for the enchanters, the astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. And then the queen, who was obviously not present, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. Now, I want you all to think about what I'm getting ready to read, and tell me if the world will recognize this about you. Verse 11. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, not to be confused with Belshazzar, <laughs> 
This was uh, Daniel's Babylonian name. Remember when they brought them from Judah, they changed their names. They tried to feed them their diet. They tried to indoctrinate them into the Babylonian culture. And Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach would not do that. (laughs) This man, Daniel, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel... And he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means. But they could not explain it. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck. And you'll be made the the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Right here, what I'm getting ready to read explains to you why so many people named their sons Daniel. Oh, to be a Daniel. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king. Tell him what it means. Verse 18, O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and power. I want you all to picture Daniel standing there before that entire party that was getting drunk. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heavens. Notice this word, until... He acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. And right here, beginning with verse 22, you see a man who has no fear when he knows God is with him. He's addressing the king who could have him killed. He says, but you, his son of Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. Do you think we do this today? But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote this, the inscription. By the way, when I read that about that he sent the hand that wrote the inscription, can you remember another time when God wrote in the sand? How about John chapter 8 when they brought in the woman caught in the act of adultery and threw it at the feet of Jesus? What's the first thing he did? He took his hand and he wrote in the sand. This is the inscription that was written, many, many tekel parson. And this is what these words mean, many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. 
Peres, by the way, that's singular for parson. Your, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. I want you to listen and listen carefully. When a nation so dishonors God and refuses to repent, that nation should expect the imminent judgment of God. It's basically asking God to judge us. And that's what we're doing. Has this ever happened before? Well, in Genesis chapter 15, God explained to Abraham that he was going to form a nation from his offspring. Hopefully you know the story. Moreover, God told Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved in a foreign land for how many years? 400. And as you know, that happened in Egypt under Pharaoh. At the, at the end of that time, God told Abraham that he was going to rescue him and the Israelites. That would be his descendants in the land of Egypt and bring them back to the promised land, which at the current time was occupied by the Amorites also known as the Canaanites. Now, here's the main question. Why was God going to take the land away from the Amorites and give it to the Israelites? Weren't they just innocent bystanders? No. Genesis 15, 16 explains, in the fourth generation, your descendants, talking again to Abraham, will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Did y'all hear that? The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What does this tell you about God? It tells you that he is watching and measuring sin. The whole time the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, God was watching and measuring the sin of the Amorites, and he gave them plenty of time to repent. Plenty of time. But they refused. Psalm 33, verses 13 through 15 says, from, the, from heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth, who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. As America continues to dishonor the name of God, I want you to remember this. He is watching and measuring our sin. God gave the land of the Amorites to the descendants of Abraham because the sin of the Amorites was so egregious. The boundary line between God's patience and his wrath was crossed. But I want you to notice, and as I just said, he gave them 400 years to repent in spite of what they were doing. Do you know what they were doing for 400 years? They worshiped many false gods. Sound familiar? They practiced the horrible ritual of child sacrifice. Sound familiar? They participated in religious prostitution, sorcery, and witchcraft, and God's patience finally ran out. Babylon was just as evil. Thus, on October 12, 539 B.C., King Cyrus's army advanced against the city of Babylon. And guess what? Belshazzar knew that the Medes and the Persians were encamped around the city, but he wasn't worried. He thought he was untouchable. After all, the city walls were too high to climb. 
Some of them were over 300 feet high. Can you imagine that? There were two numer- there were, and there were numerous defense towers. The walls were so broad that several chariots could be driven abreast of each other on top of the wall. And to show his lack of concern, Bill Shazerl said, well, let's just celebrate. We'll have a party. I'm not worried about them. They can't get to us. We're untouchable. And it was no small party. Commentator John Phillips describes the setting. The dining room was enormous, reportedly 1,650 feet wide and a mile long. Some 4,400 pillars in the form of giant elephants were part of the walls. These elephants were carved out of stone and stood 20 feet high. The tables were fashioned in the form of horseshoes. You can picture the lords of Babylon were, were sat down with their wives and their concubines, and they were eating and drinking as trained peacocks, arrayed in gold and silver harnesses, pulled carts of rich food around. From the adjoining gardens, an enormous choir and orchestra provided music and entertainment. Some of you may be aware that the hanging gardens of Babylon were once considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They, it was a very rich nation. Sound familiar? This was a gala affair. All the dignitaries were dressed in their finest and toasting one another with the golden goblets that had been taken from God's holy temple. And everyone was partying and laughing the night away. And yet no one knew that judgment was at hand. Just like our country and our world today. God is still watching. He's still measuring sin. In Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says, As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. A flood was waiting outside the city walls of Babylon. And that flood was the Medo-Persian army. As the revelry of the party climaxed, Belshazzar had a thought, well, let's bring in the gold and silver goblets from the temple of the Jews and drink from them. And that's what they did. And listen, through this act, you know what he was doing? He was declaring that the gods of Babylon were greater than the god of the Jews. And as they drank, they mocked God. And they ridiculed the Lord of heaven. And they hailed the gods made with hands. But God will not be mocked. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So out of the darkness of the night, the hand of God appeared and wrote four words on the wall. Many, many, tekel, parson. Belshazzar was terrified. His face turned pale. He did what all unbelievers do. He called for worldly men to help him with a spiritual problem. Now listen, if you have a spiritual problem, do not go to someone who is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit for any counsel or advice. Psychology is the study of the soul. Who created the soul? God. If you choose to go to a psychiatrist or a counselor, which is fine, make sure they know Jesus so that he can give you counsel from God's word that will nourish your soul. 
The wisdom of the world is passing away. So these wise men came in, and guess what? They couldn't answer the, the, the uh, they couldn't solve the problem. Why is that? Because they were not indwelt by the Spirit of God like Daniel was. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Why is that? Because it requires spiritual discernment. So seeing that these so-called wise men had no answers, the queen remembered a wise man from the past, and so she told the king about Daniel. Now, Daniel at this time was about 80 years old. That means I've got a few more years, hopefully. <laughs> so Daniel was, was called in, and the king praised him and offered him all kinds of rewards. But you know what? Daniel had no interest in the things of this world. What about you? At some point, listen, this may be the most important thing I'll say to you today. As this world grows darker and darker, and your friends realize at some point they have no answers, they may turn to you. And you need to be like Daniel. You need to speak the truth boldly, but in love. Are you ready for that? Because people are looking for answers. I go to Panera Bread every morning, and there's this one man there whose son is 25 years old, without a job. He's an alcoholic. And he's looking for answers. They're everywhere you go. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Daniel reminded the king of the, of the time his grandfather. This, by the way, sometimes they'll say the father when it's really an ancestor. So there was probably somebody in between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. So he, King Nebuchadnezzar was probably his grandfather. But anyway, he reminds Belshazzar, because I think he's still trying to reach Belshazzar with the truth, just like Jesus did with the Pharisees. He's reminded him of his grandfather and how that God removed him from the throne until he acknowledged God as the sovereign ruler of the universe. And then he said to Belshazzar, but you did not honor the, the one who holds in your hands your life. Therefore he sent the hand and wrote these four strange words, many, many tekel parson. And here's what these words mean one more time. Many means numbered. Your days have been numbered and come to an end. Tekel means weighed. Your life's Work has been weighed in the balance and found lacking. And parson means divided. Your kingdom has been taken from you and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, why am I emphasizing these words? These are the very words that a non-believer will hear when they stand at the great white throne judgment to be condemned. Numbered. Their days will have been numbered and come to an end. Tuckled. Their life's work will be weighed in the balance and found lacking. And then parson, divided, separated. They'll be separated from the God who loves them and from heaven and from joy and from peace forever. I think sometimes we just take, I mean, I'm, I'm talking to me. We take our salvation so for granted that we have eternal life that we don't really care as much as we should for those who are lost. I, I'm guilty as charged. I'm in the ministry. History informs us, listen, that that very night, Darius, under the, under the uh, authority of King Cyrus, diverted the Euphrates River, 
which ran under the walls into the city so that it became a dry riverbed. And the media Persian army, listen, just walked in under the city gate and killed Belshazzar. And the Babylonian empire came to an end just as was prophesied in Daniel chapter 2. By the way, did you know that everything that happened right here to Belshazzar on that very night was prophesied 150 years earlier by Isaiah. Isaiah lived around, if I'm doing my math right, around 650 to 700 B.C., and this happened around 520 to 550 B.C. So 150 years had passed. And here's what God told his wonderful great prophet Isaiah in chapter 13 of Isaiah. He tells Isaiah, Isaiah, see, I will stir up against them, talking about Babylon, the Medes. I mean, God named the very army. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. And if that weren't enough, in Isaiah chapter 45, God told him who the ruler would be. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of, the, of their armor. Do you not marvel at God's word? It's true. <laughs> God raised up King Cyrus to be his instrument of judgment as his army brought the Babylonian Empire to an end. Why did this happen? Because King Belshazzar, Belshazzar crossed the boundary line between God's patience and his wrath. When he first surrendered to the idea of exalting the gods of Babylon while insulting the living God of Israel. And God will not be mocked. You have to wonder, folks, if America hasn't crossed that line already. You, you, I have to wonder when I look out at what's taking place in our country if God's patience hasn't already run out with us. Just this past month, during the whole month of June, our nation celebrated the LGBTQ movement, call, calling it Pride Month, my, my birthday month, by the way. Here's what I want you to think about. What symbol has this movement hijacked? The rainbow. Do you know what the rainbow is symbolic of? God's grace and mercy. Right after the flood that wiped out every living creature on the face of the planet, with the exception of the animals that were on the ark and, and Noah's family, God made a promise to Noah. There's always mercy in the midst of God's wrath, Habakkuk 3.2. Always mercy in the midst of God's wrath. So do not lose hope this morning, okay? By the way, this is referred to as the Noahic covenant. In the Old Testament, you have the following covenants, which are critical to understand God's redemptive plan for the history of the world. You have the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. Go study them. <laughs> Genesis chapter 9. And God said... Again, he's speaking to Noah. This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, have y'all seen one recently? <laughs> I saw one two days ago. 
Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind of the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on earth. Can y'all believe we've taken that incredible sign, hijacked it, turned it upside down, and we're mocking God every time we raise a rainbow over a gay parade. By the way, I'm going to mention homosexuality and abortion. I'm not picking out these sins. All sin is sin, but we're not having adultery parades. <laughs> we're not having other kinds of parades that I'm aware of. So the reason that ministers like me focus on abortion and homosexuality is because it's being thrust in our face by the media. And so we have to address it, do we not? I had a guy sit in my office uh, the other day who told me he's bisexual. He's now born again. It's not the unpardonable sin. The only unpardonable sin is unbelief. On June 25th, our city celebrated this movement with a parade, just like that party that Bill Shazar had. They called it Raleigh Pride Out Day. Some of the sponsors were Wake Med, Red Hat, Wells Fargo, Duke Energy, UNC Health, PNC Bank, Advanced Auto Parts, Blue Cross Blue Shield, ABC Channel 11, and the list goes on and on and on. I didn't see any church sponsoring this, but I know that there were some churches participating in it because I saw them on Facebook. All throughout the Bible, God says he hates the shedding of innocent blood. Proverbs 6, 16 and 70 says there are six things that the Lord hates. That's a strong word. Seven things that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, what is that? Pride, pride of the Babylonians. A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. That, that phrase, hands that shed innocent blood, is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. One of the most egregious sins committed by the Amorites and even the Israelites was child sacrifice. Can you think of anything worse than taking a little child and placing it on a, an altar of iron that's been heated up and sacrificing it to a false god? What do you think abortion is? We've sacrificed over 60 million babies in this country alone to the God of convenience, primarily. And God says he hates the shedding of innocent blood. And listen, we can't expect God to just turn his back on activities that he declares in his word to be egregious sins. Otherwise, he would have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. So here's the question, and this is what I want to end with. Okay? <laughs> what has happened to our nation? A nation that began so well. As our history books are literally being rewritten, we need as Christian parents to remember true history. And we need to teach it to our children. And I don't have a lot of time to share with you a whole lot of events, but I want to share just a couple of events in our, in our formation as a nation that show us how we began. In Gary DeMar's book, America, America's Christian Heritage, he writes... On December 22, 1620, the Puritans landed from the Mayflower and planted their feet on the Rock of Plymouth. We know it as Plymouth Rock. And began a new era in the history of the world. Their first act after landing was to kneel down and offer their thanksgiving to God. And by a solemn act of prayer and in the name and for the sake of Christ, 
to take possession of the continent. Thus they repeated the Christian consecration which Columbus, more than a century before, had given to the new world. And so twice in the most formal and solemn manner was our continent devoted to Christ and Christian civilization. Noah Webster, who lived from 1758 to 1843, was an American textbook pioneer, English language spelling reformer, political writer, editor and author, and he had been called the father of American scholarship and education. He was also a member of the Connecticut House of Representatives. And he writes, now listen to this, quote, all the colonies educated under the genius of Christianity and indoctrinated into the knowledge of the principles of just civil governments laid the basis of their civil system on the Bible and made its truths the cornerstone of all their institutions. The fundamental doctrine of the men who planted each colony was that the legislation of the Bible must be supreme and universal. They rejected as heretical the idea that civil governments could be rightly instituted or wisely administered without Christianity. What happened to our nation? Have you ever heard of the New England Primer? I hold in my hand a copy, a replica of the one that was used in our nation. It was first introduced in 19, excuse me, 1690 by Benjamin Harris. And it was the first textbook printed in America in 1777. And for the first 100 years after its introduction, this was the beginning textbook that all of our students were being taught. <laughs> Do you know how they taught the alphabet? A. It's right in here. In Adam's sin, we sinned all. B. Heaven defined the Bible mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. D, the deluge drowned the earth around. I had to mention that because they talked about judgment back then. <laughs> it's got a plan of salvation in it. It's got catechisms that they taught the kids, songs, all right here. Not only did the first students who were our great, 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 great grandchildren learn something about the Bible, they also prayed in school up until I was in the third grade, which was 1962, when they removed prayer from school and began to remove God from the public arena. And, and we would strip away the Ten Commandments and every Bible verse on all the monuments in Washington, D.C., if we could. One last example. One of our more liberal Supreme Court Chief Justices, Earl Warren, during an interview in 1954 with Time Magazine, said this, quote, this was 1954, the year I was born, I believe no one can read the history of our country without realizing that the good book and the spirit of the Savior have been from the beginning our guiding geniuses. I believe the entire Bill of Rights came into being because of the knowledge our forefathers had of the Bible and their belief in it. I like to believe we're living today in the spirit of the Christian religion. That was 1954. Listen to this. I also like to believe that as long as we do so, no great harm can come to our country. As long as we do so. I believe our founding forefathers, Noah Webster, Earl Warren, would weep if they saw our nation today. I believe God is weeping. So what happened to us? 
The same thing that's happened to other, every other nation in the history of the world when you turn away from God. Romans 1 tells us exactly what happened. And I'm going to read just a few verses here from Romans 1. I'm going to begin with verse 22. I want you to notice three times in here, it says God gave them over. Three times. The first time God gives us over is to natural sin. The second time he gives us over is to unnatural sin. And the third time, pretty much when you reach the bottom of the barrel, he gives you over to a depraved mind. That's where America is. We have a depraved mind. A depraved mind is one that, that can no longer distinguish between right and wrong. Verse 22, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore... God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. These are not my words. <laughs> These are God's words. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is the one that gets me, verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. In other words, just look at Hollywood. They celebrate sin. I just remember this. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but the day after, I believe, wrote the Roe v. Wade decision that was your first handed down, they were interviewing this uh, woman who said she was Jewish. But that didn't have anything to do with it. She just said, I'm Jewish. She was nine months pregnant. She had two children right over here. And she had her shirt pulled up to show her extended stomach. And she had these words written on it. This is not human yet. She said, those two children are human. This one's not. Now, I'll tell you this from the bottom of my heart. I didn't enjoy giving that message. <laughs> and you probably didn't enjoy listening to it. But the truth sometimes is painful. And if you, we don't have pain in our hearts for the world, we're blind. <laughs> I wish I could have come in here and preached the message about the grace of God. Because I will tell you this, God's grace is still there. Do you know how we know His grace is still there? Because we're still living. <laughs> and that means the door to heaven is still open. The cross is still standing there as a, an escape from His coming wrath. So let me ask you this, do you care about the world around you? 
I know you do. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. So we're supposed to go out there and be salt and light. So how should we live in a world that's now Babylon? Well, we need to live just the way Daniel did. He is our shining example. I wish I could preach next Sunday and I would talk about how to be a Daniel in today's culture. But let me just give you, in your outline, there's, there's I think, four. I'm going to add a, another one because I thought about this one. Now, even though the book of Daniel doesn't really talk, I don't know that it talks about repentance. Anybody like Daniel would understand this truth. A believer should live his life in a constant state of repentance. Why? Because we keep on sinning. And God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repent. So repentance begins with the church. If we want to see God heal our land, we have to repent first right in here. And then hopefully God will bring the nation to repentance. And then also Daniel prayed three times a day. That's how he ended up in the lion's den. That's the only thing they could find against him. He said he would not disobey his God. Was God with him in the lion's den? He'll be with us in the lion's den. Number three, God's, he, Daniel studied God's word. We need to be students of God's word. If you don't love reading it, ask God to give you love for it. It's a discipline. Daniel lived a life of obedience. I have to say, when I look back at my life, I have some regrets. How about you? You have some regrets. Guess what? You can be a Daniel right now for the rest of your life. That's what I want to be. Finally, Dan Daniel stood up for truth and spoke it fearlessly. We need to be prepared to speak truth into a culture that has lost all concept of real truth, which is God's truth. I'll close with this one verse. This verse expresses my heart this morning to all of you. Jude, who is half-brother of Jesus, he writes this in verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to speak to you this morning about the salvation we share, I felt I had to urge to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once fallen trusted to the saints, to many of our founding fathers. By the way, that word, that word contend means to struggle like an athlete trying to win in the Olympic Games. We're, we're to contend for the truth, people, and it's a struggle. The world is evil. The times are waxing late. We need to be sober and keep vigil because the judge is at the gate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, even though this was a very difficult message, I thank you that you gave me the strength to give it. And I pray to you, Heavenly Father, that you would take this message and that you would pour it into our minds and hearts and change us. I think the church needs to be, be, be wakened up to the reality of the world around us that is falling apart at the seams. And we need to go out there, not with our heads hung low, but with our heads held high. Because we have the hope, we have the hope of you living in us. And we have a, what a great hope you are. And we can share this hope with a lost world. Thank you for this day, Lord. Now go with us. In your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.